War in Mali, over or just beginning? Today, Wednesday, February 6th. From Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. The French say they're leaving Mali next month, but the fighting there is starting again. And later, the Irish government admits playing a role in forcing thousands of women to work in sweatshop conditions. Some say the admission isn't enough. I'm sure they could some kind of a scheme, especially the elderly first, and maybe give out a little bit of compensation to them to help them, because none of us have much. Plus, a TV chef competition in Israel that reinforces stereotypes. Tom is very accurate. I think he's the only competitor who uses timer when he enters the kitchen. He is accurate in a way that only a German can be. PRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. For French troops battling Islamists in Mali, it's looking increasingly like getting into the conflict was a lot easier than getting out is going to be. New fighting is flaring now near the northern city of Gao, that despite reports that Islamist militants had withdrawn from the city. The rebels have been firing rockets at French troops, and they claim to still control settlements in the northeast. France is anxious to begin drawing down its 4,000 soldiers from Mali. The French foreign minister said today those troops should begin pulling out in March. CBC reporter Laura Lynch has just returned from northern Mali and is now in the capital Bamako. So you've just returned from Gao where you've been telling us about the very precarious situation there, Laura. What do these new reports of skirmishes tell us about the state of the conflict? It says that that the suspicions they had about the area not being very secure seemed to be panning out. The fact that they had found roadside bombs when I was traveling up there with the military convoy was the first hint that the Islamists weren't very far away. And these fresh reports of skirmishes seem to confirm that they've still got a battle on their hands in the region around Gao. So the French may want to go home, but that may not be an easy thing. And I've got to tell you, Marco, on the drive into... Bamako today, down from Gao, I saw two huge convoys of French fighting vehicles, heavy, heavy fighting vehicles heading up the road on its way to Gao. So they seemed to be getting ready for another battle and they knew that it wasn't going to be over as, as quickly as all that. They are still trying to secure Kadal. French jets are still trying to bomb militant bases in the desert. Well, we'll hear what's on the minds of Malians in Gao when we hear your report from there in a moment. But is there a sense, Laura, that when the French pull out, Malians are back to square one as jihadists move back in? Is that given? Well, you certainly get that impression talking to people in Gao, and I would assume that a lot of people in northern Mali feel that way. They feel that their army let them down almost a year ago now, that they were never up to the fight, and they just don't feel as though they'll be up to the fight now. Laura Lynch, let's listen to that story now that you reported from Gal. On a dusty street in the city, a man uses crude tools to repair his motorcycle. A lot has broken down in Gao in the last nine months after the Islamists moved in. People struggled to get by and to survive the occupation. Many blame the Malian army for simply fleeing when the rebels swept into town. Now that the French have come to the rescue, many don't want them to leave. Others, like this man, say what's key is to give Malian troops more help. 
de formation. If they receive training and equipment, they will be able to keep our city safe, he says. Colonel Major Didier Darko stands tall at the Gao military base recently recaptured by his troops fighting alongside the French. He led Malian forces into battle in Gao. He understands the criticism and says the army has learned a lot of lessons in the last year. But he too thinks other nations, the United States included, need to step up and offer Mali and its army much more help. I, I think so. I think that the whole international community should come behind to help us get out of this situation. The jihadists are not only against Mali, this is what I think. It's an international threat and it should, should be addressed by an international action. With its modest military commitment in Mali right now, it appears the United States may not agree. It's contributing refueling and transport planes and some intelligence to the war effort in Mali. But so far, that's all. In the past, though, the U.S. has spent much time and money training the Malian army to bolster its ability to fight. But only last year, it cancelled plans to do more training exercises after a rebellion by members of the minority Tuareg population. If the international community isn't prepared to go any further, that's fine with one segment of Mali's army. This special forces officer, now battle-hardened, doesn't hesitate when asked what will happen if the jihadists return. That question is irrelevant, he says. We're prepared for everything. We are always ready. The thousands of French troops on the ground, though, suggest that in itself may just not be enough in the weeks and months to come. For The World, I'm Laura Lynch. Gao. The Tuareg ensemble Tinariwen there from Mali, one of many acts that has spread Mali's music across the globe. One key force behind that spread has been Mali's annual festival in the desert. It began in 2001 as a way to showcase Malian music, but also drew global stars like Robert Plant and Bono. This year, though, because of the war, the festival was canceled. Still, the festival in the desert and its Mali and Tuareg leader, Mani Ansar, were honored today with the Free Muse Award. It's given each year by a Denmark-based group, Free Muse, to an individual or organization that has worked for freedom of musical expression in a remarkable way. Mani Ansar joined us from Bamako earlier today. He says he's proud of the award and his work with the festival over the past decade. We are really happy of this. And of course, we had the last 10 years to say no for intolerance, and especially the last 10 months when the north of Mali was occupied and we had to take a decision to stop as if people would like us to do or to continue our struggle. And we decided to continue our festival and helping artists to express. So this year, because of the struggles and, and the war, the festival in the desert is not happening. How do you feel about receiving this award in such a tumultuous moment? Yes, this is important for us. It gave us more courage and galvanized us in our uh, decision to continue the festival around the world in neighbor country. Even it was not possible to have it in Timbuktu, we are going to, to play our music everywhere. As we say to this uh, extremist, you, you have been able to stop music in Timbuktu and the north of Mali, but we'll never be able to stop Malian music around the world. 
I mean, it's important to notice that the festival was able to achieve what the Malian government has been unable to do for so long, uniting Tuareg and Berber and uh, sub-Saharan black Africans in this one place to listen to music. But why do you think all these troubles kind of erupted once the music stops? You know, Malian music is uh, very important for all citizens and, and is really a factor of unity. All Malian are proud of their uh, major artists. And for a long tradition, artists have a special place in the society. The artist is the only one who could, in the past, speak to the king directly and tell him what is wrong and what is not good to do. And this tradition still continues. Even we are here in Bamako, we have some artists who are telling to politicals and also to extremists telling to rebels, do not do this, this is not good, we don't accept. What was your reaction to the news some months ago that uh, extremist militants in the north forbade music under Sharia law? Of course, it was a very sad uh, decision, but it also gave us uh, a kind of revolt. Everyone said no. All Malian population said this is not possible. They couldn't stop music. Manny, since there is no festival this year, maybe you can tell us who you were really looking forward to hearing. I mean, I know Tinariwen is the Tuareg band that has been kind of fundamental and the spine of the festival. Is there somebody new this year that uh, you really wanted to hear? I want to hear uh, Fatoumata Jawara. This is really having the same struggle as us for Malian unity. Fatoumata Jawara, fantastic okay. singer. Well, Manny Ansar, thank you very much for speaking with us. And again, congratulations on the Free Muse Award. Thank you very much, Mark. You're welcome. <laughs> It's strange to think about music in Mali with all the violence these days. In 2002, I traveled there and met the late great guitarist Ali Farkature in the north of the country. You can virtually travel back with me at theworld.org. It'll be interesting to see if Molly comes up tomorrow at John Brennan's confirmation hearing. Probably not. Brennan is President Obama's pick for CIA director, and he's all but certain to be quizzed extensively about a different topic, drones. Brennan's been called the face of the U.S. drone program. During his tenure as Deputy National Security Advisor, the CIA and the military dramatically increased their use of drone strikes. But Daniel Clademan says that's not the whole story. Clademan tracked the Obama-Brennan relationship for his book, Kill or Capture. He says that behind the scenes, Brennan argued for restraint when the CIA and the military pushed to expand drone operations. The military, um, from the very start of Obama's presidency, um, had wanted to go into um, Somalia with large numbers of, of drone strikes um, and, and what, what are called signature strikes, when you don't actually know the identities of the people you're going after, but they're people who uh, you know, bear certain characteristics associated with terrorism. The president said no um, at John Brennan's urging. Um, he didn't want to do that. He didn't want to start uh, going into Somalia like that. He didn't want to get enmeshed in what was um, you know, essentially a a domestic local uh, insurgency with an unclear threat uh, to the United States. So he limited the, uh, the, those kinds of strikes in, in Somalia and ultimately um, relied on a more regional uh, approach to the problems there, relying on um, local African uh, governments uh, uh, to get involved there, and that seems to have worked. Um, 
he could have uh, expanded the drone war into Mali. There certainly uh, would be a temptation to do that. Um, but uh, he hasn't done that, and that's also to some degree uh, as a result of uh, John Brennan's urging. The president and John Brennan are very like-minded on, on this issue. Let me just move off drones briefly, uh, Dan. What about the charges from some corners that uh, John Brennan supported enhanced interrogation uh, under uh, George W. Bush? What John Brennan has said was that, that yes, he was there, uh, but he opposed it. Um, now, I have not been able to find anyone in the CIA um, who rec- recalls him opposing it, but it may be that he quietly told his boss, George Tenet, that he didn't think this was a good idea. Mm. Um, we just don't know that for sure. Um, once he left in 2005, he did publicly criticize waterboarding. He said, you know, it's, it, he, he equated it to torture. But the truth about all of that is somewhat murky. My guess, and this is really speculation, is that um, he perhaps didn't do as much as um, he thinks he should have to, to oppose it. And that's part of what has emboldened him and animated him uh, to be more aggressive um, in terms of civil liberties uh, since he's been in the Obama administration. Now, that may sound surprising to some people, uh, since he is the public face of the drone program, but he has been a fairly passionate advocate for, um, you know, for the rule of law on a lot of other uh, counterterrorism programs, the closing down of Guantanamo, civilian trials. I mean, it does, um, it does bring up a, a, a interesting point, and that is, I mean, he's a Jesuit educated Catholic. Uh, he's presumably thought a lot about morality. What do you think happens in John Brennan's uh, head these days on, on these big issues like preemptive killings and drones and torture? Well, I think he belie- I think he's he believes in just war theory. He's not a pacifist. I think his view would be that you have to do sometimes you have to do terrible things, but the way to do it is is to you know I- embed uh, these choices you know in 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 the law and and in in rules. Um, and I think. Um, he thinks that that's what he's doing, and that's obviously subject to interpretation. Daniel Clydman, author of Kill or Capture, The War on Terror and the Soul of the Obama Presidency. Dan, thanks a lot. Thank you. We have more coverage of drones, including a look at the domestic implications of drone use. That's at theworld.org. Later in the program, we take you to Mexico, where a bug is more durable than a donkey on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. President Obama is heading to the Middle East next month. The president's first overseas trip of his second term will include stops in Israel, the West Bank, and Jordan. Many Israelis were cool toward Obama during his first term. And as the world's Matthew Bell reports from Jerusalem, he'll encounter a lot of skepticism among Israeli politicians. Newly elected members of the Israeli Knesset took the oath of office yesterday at the Parliament Building in Jerusalem. Among the parties that did well in the recent national election was the Jewish Home Party. Its leader campaigned on a promise to prevent the ultimate goal of the U.S.-sponsored peace process, which is the creation of an independent Palestinian state. If Mr. Obama hopes to persuade Israelis to return to negotiations with the Palestinians, 
he could be in for some serious pushback. Jewish home lawmaker Avi Wurtzman says the results of the election in Israel show that people are asking their leaders to deal with domestic issues. Right now is not the time, he says, to try and revive the peace process. If the American president wants his first state visit to Israel to succeed, he would be wise to lower expectations, says political analyst Shmuel Rosner, who writes for the Jewish Journal. He shouldn't aim too high, he shouldn't make any promises, and I think by this time Obama is probably experienced enough to know that making promises such as we are going to have peace within a year or two years, uh, like he said at the beginning of his first term, would not be the wisest thing to do. Rosner thinks President Obama's main focus when he comes to meet with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu next month will be something different altogether. I think the timing of the visit is more about Iran than about the Palestinian peace process. The president has to make sure that him and the prime minister are on the same page. Uh, Let me remind you that the prime minister spoke at the UN. He drew the red line. People saw it, and the red line is coming this summer. If the administration can first avert confrontation with Iran, Rosner suggests, the opportunity for renewing peace talks could then present itself. But on the Palestinian side, there is also no small amount of skepticism about Mr. Obama's upcoming visit. Nashat Akhtash is a professor of communications at Birzeit University. The American president might have good intentions, he says, but that's not enough. The Israelis are not sincere about finding solution. They just want a negotiation for the sake of it, for a public relations campaign. The visit of President Obama might help in this, not more than that. At yesterday's Knesset ceremony, Israeli President Shimon Peres did suggest that the peace process needs to be on the government's agenda. He said successful negotiations with the Palestinians are a key part of Israel's security. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. Israelis may not be very excited by Obama's planned visit, but evidently they are excited about cooking. In fact, more than half the Jewish population of Israel tuned in recently to watch the finale of the Israeli version of the TV show Master Chef. It pitted an unlikely cast of kitchen warriors against each other, as Daniela Cheslow reports from Tel Aviv. It's the last episode of the Israeli version of MasterChef. The reality TV show pitted 14 amateur chefs against each other. The three remaining contestants sound like a bad joke. Tom Franz, a lanky German convert to Judaism, Salma Fayumi, an Israeli Arab Muslim woman, and Jackie Azulai, an Orthodox Jewish woman in a long blonde wig. For Tom, tonight's a chance to prove more than his knife skills. It's a way to finally arrive in Israel. He first came here as a high school exchange student and later returned as a volunteer in a hospital. Almost nine years ago, he took the plunge. He moved to Israel, converted to Judaism, learned Hebrew, and married a Jewish wife. I had some hard time here in the beginning to to find my way here and to get uh, accepted. I don't know if I need to win the MasterChef competition to accomplish this, but it would be like, I don't know, like finishing this long journey of arriving to Israel. Part of the journey was adapting to keeping kosher, a set of dietary laws observant Jews follow in the kitchen. The hardest is to give up the mixture of meat and dairy. It's not so easy sometimes because there are a lot of things you have to take care of. Tom's wife, Dana, signed him up for the cooking competition, and he was shocked to make it past auditions. 
Kham quickly stood out in the competition for his impeccable technique, perfectly chopping his vegetables and arranging them meticulously on the plate. German dishes were at the forefront of his first few meals. For one, he made a smoked salmon quiche. For another, a long roll of stuffed cabbage. It was his comfort food, but European food is looked down on in Israel, where the national palate is more attuned to Mediterranean staples, like fresh herbs and grilled meats. Eyal Shani, a chef and one of the four judges, urged him to roast his vegetables. Tom has got a very European cooking. But you know, sometimes the European cooking can make you to be blind to the ingredients because it's very complicated. All the same, the judges appreciated his technique. Here's another judge, Michal Ansky. Tom is the only competitor who uses timer when he enters the kitchen. He knows exactly the temperature of the water when he cooks potatoes. He is accurate in a way that only a German can be. As the season wore on and Tom survived elimination rounds, he moved more toward Mediterranean dishes. His couscous wowed the judges. His trout and potatoes blew away Judge Shani. That was one of the best that I ever ate in my life. It was real potato and real trout that were talking between themselves. In the final episode, Tom found himself in the middle of an unlikely cross-section of Israeli culture. Salma Fayumi, the nurse from an Arab village, fused traditional Palestinian dishes with Mediterranean flavors. Jackie Azulai, the Orthodox woman with Moroccan roots, made North African standards. Jackie said she had never met an Arab before. Halfway through the finale, Jackie was eliminated and Tom and Salma faced off. Tom blackened eggplants and red pepper. He smashed the eggplants into a cream and spread it on a long, white plate. On top of that, he placed slices of sirloin steak, rubbed with a red pepper paste. Finally, he put tiny potato cubes across the eggplant cream. It was a marriage of his European roots, the potato, the precise slicing, the careful plating, and his new Israeli home. He summed up his cooking on the TV show in Hebrew. I left Europe and I went to Israel, and also in my cooking now, I left Europe and went to Israel. His final dish went head-to-head against Salma's beet and spinach pasta. The judges gave their verdict. The final of MasterChef was the highest-rated reality TV episode of all time in Israel. At its peak, the program pulled in more than half of Israeli Jewish households. But for Tom, it was a much more personal victory. I feel wonderful. I, I made a dream come true. For The World, I'm Daniela Cheslow, Neve Ilan, Israel. Okay, I'm hungry, again. Video and pictures of the emotional moment when Tom Franz, the lanky German convert to Judaism, became Israel's master chef. That's at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, mariachi music busting out of Mexican restaurants and into Texas high schools. When you go into mariachi, you can have the worst day of your life. Your dog died, your parents are in the hospital, and your girlfriend left you, and you're like, oh, you got a performance today. Forgot about that. And you got to go up there and you got to smile. That's coming up on The World. 
CRI's The World is supported by the Medtronic Foundation, inviting you to assist Minnesota Timberwolves' Ricky Rubio in an online simulation to learn how to save a life from sudden cardiac arrest, a leading cause of death among young athletes. Learn more at heartrescuenow.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. As Congress debates immigration reform, much of the focus is on proposals to offer illegal immigrants a path to citizenship. We want to focus on one pathway that many people think is already there. That's the notion that a non-citizen, even if undocumented, could get immediate legal residency simply by marrying a U.S. citizen. Not so simple under a 1996 immigration law. Part of that law was aimed at bogus marriages, where a couple pretends to marry for love just to get citizenship for the undocumented party. But the law has also ended up penalizing legitimate couples. Reporter Amy Isaacson has one family story. Amy reported jointly with the California Report and with Susan Ferris of the Center for Public Integrity. We're in Tijuana, Mexico. It's a typical Monday morning in the Barber household. TJ and his wife Maite take turns at the bathroom sink. They make coffee and head to the car. They get their 10-year-old son Lucas snuggled into the back seat. Then TJ does something unusual. He lies down on the street to inspect underneath his vehicle. I have a flashlight going on my phone. He's looking for drugs. Recently, smugglers have targeted cross-border commuters like TJ and attached packets of drugs underneath their cars. Yeah, it looks fine. Okay, it's all clear. The barbers pull away from their Tijuana apartment at 3.30 a.m. to beat the long line at the border crossing. TJ has to get to work as a software engineer in San Diego. Lucas can't be late for fourth grade. Maite drives so they can sleep. When they're just a few cars away from crossing, Maite hands the wheel to TJ. Then she walks to the bus stop and heads home alone in Tijuana. Maite and TJ married in San Diego a dozen years ago, but Maite is barred from the U.S. Right now, this is kind of um, the best way we can do it. The Barbers are just one of thousands of families split up like this. It's because of a little-known rule in a 1996 immigration reform package. It's designed to keep undocumented immigrants, like Maite, out of the U.S., even if they marry U.S. citizens. It can happen like this. An undocumented immigrant's spouse returns to his or her home country to finish up the green card application process. But if that person entered the U.S. illegally and lived here for more than six months, he or she is barred from the U.S. In March, a change ordered by President Obama will bring some relief. It lets undocumented spouses apply for what's called a hardship waiver before they leave for that mandatory interview instead of afterwards like now. But that change won't help the barbers, who still won't qualify for hardship waivers. That's because when Maite crossed the border in 1997, she crossed twice because the Border Patrol caught her on her first try. That disqualifies Maite from getting a waiver, and the change isn't retroactive. Maite says living in the mountains in Mexico, she didn't know about any of this before she came to the U.S., she just wanted a better life. And when Maite got work at a Burger King in San Diego and fell in love with her husband, TJ, who's a U.S. citizen, well, the couple thought that marriage would solve any immigration issues. And I was aware of her immigration situation. And I, like most people under the pressure, was like, well, I mean, if she gets married to me, then we're set. 
Not so. Maite's past with the Border Patrol meant she was out of luck. Instead of risking years of separation, the Barbers, like thousands of other families, went underground to stay together, until Maite was caught in 2010. A policeman pulled her over for driving too slowly. He handed her over to Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And I was sure that we would be able just to work it out. I was just like, okay, come on, look, she's got American citizen husband, she's got American citizen child. Like, I think you guys have bigger fish to fry. Maite fought her case from an immigration detention center for five months. She lost and was deported to Tijuana. And here is where we began our story, with the Barber family's new reality. Maite stays in Tijuana, separated from TJ and her kids and her family in southern Mexico. It takes a toll. Every day, the same image haunts Maite at 3 p.m. That's when her son, Lucas, gets out of school in San Diego. Maite explains how Lucas climbs the same tree every day after classes. He'd say, Mom, catch me if I fall. It torments Maite that she's not there now. Seven Republican congressmen who support the immigration bars declined on-air interviews for this story. Instead, they sent statements criticizing President Obama for circumventing Congress to relax immigration rules. It's unclear if comprehensive immigration reform will address such penalties. Wayne Cornelius, who's an immigration expert at the University of California, San Diego, hopes it will. The only thing that's going to enable those people to adjust their status in the U.S. is a broad legalization program of the type that we had back in 1986 to 1988. Meanwhile, Maite Barber is so lonely in Tijuana, she sells cosmetics door-to-door just to talk to people while she waits out her 20-year bar from the U.S. For The World, I'm Amy Isaacson in San Diego. We have a picture of the Barbers at theworld.org. Another focus of our relationship with Mexico is trade. A lot of it involves manufactured goods, and over the decades, Mexican manufacturing has been undergoing a transformation from an emphasis on quick and cheap too high-tech. Reporter Marlon Bishop has more. I'm sitting inside a cranky old VW Bug, stuck in Mexico City's notorious traffic. The Bug is the classic Mexico City taxi, and Victoriano Luna has been driving one for 32 years. Here we call them donkeys because they can take any weight you put on them. A horse can run fast, but it doesn't endure. A donkey just endures, just like this car. Volkswagen first came to Mexico in 1967, when it opened a plant in Puebla, a few hours from Mexico City. For decades, the Bug was the biggest selling car in the country. Today, the Puebla plant has expanded to become the largest auto factory in North America, employing 18,000 people. It's full of industrial robots and blinking computer equipment. Dona Hivayas is the plant's official tour guide. She says every 90 seconds, the factory turns out a new vehicle, like this Jetta in the final stages of production. This process is called a wedding, because like in a wedding, two people are together forever. <laughs> we are going to join here at the two parts of powertrain, anybody, just like that. And we have now a car. After rolling off the line, the Jetta will be packed on a train and most likely sold abroad. Mexico is currently the world's fourth biggest auto exporter. The country is attractive to car companies for a number of reasons. A great location for exporting to North and South America, an open trade policy, and an experienced workforce. 
Last September, Audi, a Volkswagen subsidiary, announced the construction of a new plant nearby. They'll be assembling a luxury SUV. Eduardo Solis, president of the Mexican Automotive Industry Association, says it's a watershed moment. There is an important element here where Mexico is currently in the automotive industry associated with good quality, with good products. We have been scaling up in the value chain. Until recently, Mexico's economy was based on low-paying, labor-intensive industries like textiles. About a decade ago, those industries started fleeing to China or Central America, where it's even cheaper to operate. But now, Mexico is growing big time in better-paying industries like autos, aerospace, and technology, which require better educated workers. Hector Munoz, a 48-year-old technician at Volkswagen, is a living example of that change. Munoz comes from a family of street vendors. On the VW line, he makes 12,000 pesos a month. That's only about 30 US dollars a day, but it's six times minimum wage here, putting him squarely in Mexico's middle class. He's been able to put his kids through college. Two of them are now engineers. Before, there weren't as many opportunities as there are now. In my case, being at Volkswagen has really encouraged me to push my kids to learn more, to get better educations. There are a lot of others like Munoz. According to the World Bank, 17% of Mexico's population has joined the middle class over the past decade, making up about a quarter of the population. But there's a long way to go. Half of Mexico still lives below the poverty line. Victor Piz, editor of Mexico's chief financial newspaper, El Financiero, says those people are being left out of the high-tech boom. I think the main problem in Mexico is the distribution of revenue coming into the country. None of it goes into the pockets of Mexico's poor. This wealth doesn't matter to them because they're not receiving any benefit from it. Peace also warns that Mexico could have a problem sustaining its recent growth because it relies too heavily on one trading partner, the U.S. So when the United States turns off its engines, inevitably, Mexico also has to turn off its engines as well. Today, Mexico City traffic is no longer a sea of VW bugs. There are the gleaming Lexuses of the wealthy and the Nissans of the country's middle class, not to mention the minibuses that transport the working poor. But not to worry, taxis are still being made in Mexico. New York City's new taxi fleet of Nissans is currently in production at a plant in Cuernavaca. For The World, I'm Marlon Bishop, Mexico City. See how VW bugs are still put together in Puebla at theworld.org. Reporter Javier Risco and Round Earth Media's Mexico Reporting Project collaborated on that story. Yesterday, Ireland confronted an ugly part of its recent past. An official report acknowledged that the Irish government played a major role in running the infamous Magdalene laundries. These were workhouses managed by Catholic nuns that once locked up thousands of women and girls against their will, forcing them to perform unpaid labor. The report said more than 10,000 toiled in the laundries between 1922 and 1996. The popular notion was that many were prostitutes or unwed mothers, but the report found no evidence of that. Irish Prime Minister Enda Kenny apologized for that stigma yesterday. Now he's under pressure to issue a fuller apology. Mary Fenton was just 16 when she was sent to the Magdalene Laundries. Her grandmother sent her to an industrial school. From there, she was sent to live with nuns and work cleaning clothes. 
The reason given was that my mother lived in California and my father had done a prison sentence for drinking alcohol. It was just an excuse. What were the conditions in these workhouses? We had a, a dormitory and we ate in a refectory and we had a decent church. But the conditions of the work were so menial and so old-fashioned. What kind of work were you doing? I was in two different Magdalens. In one, I was pressing on a hopper all day. I'm sorry, pressing on the hopper? What does that mean? A thing you iron coats on. You put a coat on it, and then you pull the lid down, and you press the lever, and you lock it. And when all the steam comes out, you rise it up, and you move the coat again. How many hours a day were you doing this? You did that from 9 o'clock in the morning till 6 o'clock. How many years were you there and how did you ultimately get out? I was over a year. Um, I kicked up a stink in that one. I caused a bit of a rumpus and played them up and refused to work. And two men, I remember, I think they were the drivers of the van, they huddled me into a van and took me to another one, which was a mile away in Cork. The system was the same, but the nuns were kinder there. Was there physical abuse? You got to the stage where there would be no physical abuse because you were after getting it so much that you were brainwashed. And you knew what would happen if you you didn't toe the line. Did the Irish government yesterday explain their role in these workhouses? This is why we had the investigation. We're trying to find out what their role was. And they're saying now they did have a role, but they would have had to have had some kind of a role because they were responsible for me. I was under 18. Mm. Did you listen to the statement uh, made yesterday by Prime Minister Enda Kenny? I'm very disappointed about it because I honestly thought he would apologise to us personally. He not quite explained himself. How well have people in Ireland over the years known about the Magdalene Laundries? Almost everybody knew, but they closed their eyes. The children going to school were told, don't look there, don't go down that street. Mind your business who's in there. It was kind of a kept secret. Is there anything the, the government of Ireland could say or do at this point that would make you feel better? Oh, yes, if he would first of all and truly apologise to all of us who was in there and a genuine apology. And then maybe uh, I'm sure they could some kind of a scheme, especially the elderly first, and maybe give out a little bit of compensation to them to help them because none of us have much. As a result of being there, we never got chance to educate ourselves. There was no education in the Magdalens. You live in London now. Uh, If there had been an apology that satisfied you, would you consider returning to Ireland? I still look on Ireland as my home. I am an Irish patriot. I always will be. It's nothing wrong with my country. It's the people in it. Mary Fenton, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you, sir. Through sleet and snow, rain and ice, we deliver the GeoQuiz. (music) 
U.S. Postal Service said today that it plans to stop delivering mail on Saturdays. The financially struggling agency says that could save as much as $2 billion a year, but it could delay letters. Of course, that delay might not matter at all if you're sending a letter to one of the country's most remote neighborhoods, for instance, the South Pole. And there is a U.S. post office at the South Pole. It's at the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station. Letters sent there go by way of New Zealand, where they're loaded onto U.S. military cargo planes bound for Antarctica. And believe it or not, the place has its own zip code. And that's today's GeoQuiz, the zip code for the South Pole. It's a toughie, but give it a go. You're listening to PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We ask you for a special zip code for today's GeoQuiz. It's not 90210, that'd be Beverly Hills, nor is it 12345. That belongs to General Electric in Schenectady, New York. Then there's ours here in Boston, 02135, but it's not like anyone writes letters anymore. The zip code we're looking for is at 90 degrees south, the southernmost post office in the world. It's at the U.S. Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station, and the zip code there is an undistinguished 96598. Duffel bags of letters to 96598 travel to the South Pole on cargo planes, usually stuffed in between scientific gear and vital supplies. Deliveries can be unpredictable. Packages can take up to six weeks to get there. No word yet on whether the ending of Saturday deliveries will be enforced at the South Pole. Not as far south as that, you'll find mariachi, the quintessential music of Mexico, but not everyone loves it there. Many music educators, for example, don't take it all that seriously. It's considered bar music, unworthy of academic study. But it's becoming a different story just north of the border in Texas. The world's Jason Margolis has our story from San Antonio. The story of mariachi music in Texas schools begins with Bell San Miguel Ortiz. There's several names that they've given me, from Godmother to the Queen, uh, the mariachis. I was the very first teacher of mariachi uh, in anywhere in the world. That's a tough thing to prove, though. A lot of people will say, well, you're not the first. Yes, I am. When Ortiz first started teaching music in Texas high schools, some people didn't like what she was doing. We're talking about in the late 50s when discrimination was at its highest. And many of my colleagues reported me as saying that I was teaching choir, but everything was in Spanish. Finally, in 1970, Ortiz got permission to teach a high school mariachi class. It's come a long way since then. When I met Ortiz, who is now 79, she was judging a regional competition for a statewide high school mariachi contest. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to begin with our final groups for today. Please welcome... From Southwest ISD, Los Dragones. Ten bands from South Texas participated in the competition. Each had about a dozen members. The boys wore ornate, embroidered suits, and the girls wore floor-length skirts, sashes, and jackets. The outfits were sewn with elaborate patterns and shiny buttons. The kids looked sharp. They played violins, trumpets, and guitars. Students also played the two key mariachi instruments, the guitarron, essentially an enormous guitar, and the vihuela, a small guitar. There was also the occasional harpist and flute player. 
The students took turns walking to center stage and belting out solos. I kept forgetting that I was watching 15, 16, and 17-year-olds up on stage. They were great. High school junior Jonathan Rivera nailed a fantastic harp solo. I went up there and uh, we were playing and I was like, okay, calm down, you know, I've done this before. Vroom, 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 and yeah, I got it. And then we started the song. I, I wasn't even get close to the solo, we just started the song. And I was already like, boom, it hit me and I was like, oh my gosh, and I got nervous. And after that, it just... Mariachi is more performing. You're actually like a Broadway show. You go and you sing and you act. When you go into mariachi, you can have the worst day of your life. You're like your, your dog died, your parents are in the hospital, and your girlfriend left you, and you're like, oh, you got a performance today. Forgot about that. And you can't just go on stage with your face all frowning and whatnot. You gotta go up there and you gotta smile. You gotta do that. Rivera also plays in a rock band, but like many of the students I met, he says he gravitated to mariachi because it connects him to his Mexican roots. Senior Celia Vallez chose mariachi as an elective in the sixth grade. And the primary reason was that the majority of my family doesn't speak English, so I felt it was really a way for me to connect to them. Like other students I met, Vallez's Spanish is not the best. Spanish is actually my first language, but over the years, I haven't been able to use it as often. So it's, it still comes, but it's not as naturally. Has as mariachi helped? Yes, definitely. Still, there are some who don't understand this embrace of mariachi. I heard tales of parents who were upset that their children were wasting their time on this cantina music. It's seen as kind of a joke by many, not worthy of musical study. Texas State University in San Marcos is trying to change that attitude. It's offering classes in mariachi methods and history. Undergraduates can earn a teaching certificate in mariachi music, and the school plans to offer a summertime master's program in mariachi in the near future. John Lopez is the coordinator of Latin music studies at Texas State. He says when mariachi was first introduced there in the 1990s, it was student-taught. Then I went to the School of Music and said, we need to take this class seriously like any other ensemble. You would never do this to orchestra. Orchestra would never be student-run with a faculty advisor. He says putting mariachi in the classroom isn't just culturally important for Latino students. It's important musically. He says it's a challenging genre. All of the ensembles are either instrumental or they're either vocal. But a mariachi is unique in the fact that every single person does sing and every single person does play, and they're woven almost all the time. Mariachis face another challenge. They have to memorize their music. That's the way mariachis have always done it. The guys at the Mexican restaurants don't get to have sheet music. They know a lot, a lot of songs. They need to be prepared at any time to play a song that somebody requests. That can be anything from Elvis to Lady Gaga to pretty much everything in between. There was none of that, though, at the Texas high school competition, just traditional Mexican folk music. And that made Bill Ortiz, the godmother of mariachis, quite proud. How more beautiful can you get when students coming to me would say, you know what, Mrs. O? My grandmother 
came in when I was playing and I was singing and she says, where did you learn that song? And I said, at school. For the world, I'm Jason Margolis, San Antonio. We have a terrific slideshow of those mariachi students. You'll find it, of course, at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. I tweet at Marco Werman, and I invite you to join us back here tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.